Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Gaming Guru Podcast. My name, as always, is Gareth Woods, and I'm joined with the lovely Tim Lester down in Cape Town. How are you doing, sir? Dude, very well, very well. Hype for today's topic. Yeah, it's a good one. It's um, it's something we've hinted at perhaps in the past because I think it's something that um, is quite apropos of games and games development in the moment, and that is the topic of open world games. And I think more specifically, do they suck? Um, because it, it's the, the feeling, at least at the moment, that open world games have gotten to a stage maybe where, for one thing, uh, it as a defining kind of uh, factor of your game is perhaps overused or not as novel as it used to be, or that perhaps the level of expectation the gamers have, and we know how entitled we all can be at times, looking at you Mass Effect 3 uh, fans, but it's the <laughs> idea that perhaps we've seen so many open world games now that the standard has raised to a point where we're going, you can clearly identify the good from the not so good. So I think we want to delve into open world games. What are they? When are they good? When are they bad? Are they really open world? You know, are they always a good thing? A whole bunch of questions. Uh, but I think, Tim, if you want to start us off, kind of what is, what's an open world game for someone who, who might be listening to us or, or not understand the term? So I think the sort of, um, th there's no real like kind of general consensus on like what the earliest open world game is. But we can sort of point to um, there, there was there was an early text adventure in the 1970s um, called Colossal Cave Adventure, which sort of inspired this free roam gameplay um, that we that we see sort of slowly develop through like the 70s and 90s. Um, I, put, I, I threw up like a little um, like a little example here called Tato's Western Gun, which according to Wikipedia, is the first uh, open world video game from 1975, which had like two sort of uh, Western, you know, cowboy gunslingers who could fr uh, freely, freely roam across an environment littered with cactus and, you know, mountains while attempting to shoot one another. And, you know, through the ages, this kind of formula has expanded and developed and has become this, you know, kind of, like general genre that we can you know look to and called open world but i think within that there's a lot of nuance and like you say the standard has you know both gone up but has also gone the other direction where i think a lot of the tropes that we'll start to get into of this kind of like um open world genre game mm. uh start to get overused start to become tired and we start to to see the player's time sort of respected less and less yeah yeah, I think that's a key thing. So for me, one of the defining factors is obviously an open world game supposedly lets the player explore uh, to their heart's content or and we're going to chat about some of the perhaps um, physical limitations of that exploration. But it's essentially in direct contradiction to what you'd call a linear game. 
you know, a mm. game where you go from one stage to the next. So, you know, the classic kind of linear games are your real-time strategy games, you know, like your StarCraft mm. and that. You build a base, you build an army, you fight your opponent. It's not going to be open world. It's going to be very difficult to put an open world factor into that. So you are essentially going from mission to mission. Um, most first-person shooters are similar. Mission to mission, you kind of like progress through the story of the game. Uh, it's difficult in general uh, it, until, you know, games like Fallout and Scar uh, Skyrim and all that uh, to have done a first-person open-world game, mostly from a graphical point of view. Because for the longest yeah. time, first-person shooters were pretty much the lead for graphics. Like the, the top games were mm -hmm. always first-person shooters, you know, your crisis, crises, whatever uh, games were always kind of like lauded as the most graphically intense games. And so open world obviously has a lot of limitations when it comes to uh, graphics. I've been told, for example, in more linear games, you can kind of cheat when it comes to like, I don't know, sprites or pixels or whatever, because you only have to render them from the one viewpoint. Uh, you only have yeah. to render them from like the, the player's perspective. Whereas in open world, you start having to render them fully in 3D because a player can interact with an object mm -hmm. in multiple directions. You know, we, the thing of the classic for me was like uh, Duke Nukem 3D where you interact with like a strip or something, but like no matter which angle you interacted with her, it was always the same <laughs> like two-dimensional uh, sort of thing that they just kind of shifted no matter where you went. Yeah. Whereas, you know, um, yeah, as they we just turned into, to like, face you. I remember 100%. I used to do this thing where like I I try and like jump behind it to see if I could like <laughs> get the like thing. get it yeah. from the other angle like before it can like turn to face me but uh, no, it never worked. Me yeah. trying to like break the boundaries of my of my early games and I think yeah. it was you know my love for like RPGs and role playing games that kind of like took me towards uh, the open world genre mm. um, and. And yeah, like you, like you say, like a key distinction or at least um, one of the big draw cards is exploration. So I think like a big defining factor for open world games is that emphasis on exploration and a world that feels lived in, that feels alive in a way that that beckons the player to like kind of move through it out of uh, curiosity and yeah. let's say um, like a need or want to interact with and discover the undiscovered, like the area that's, you know, in fog, for instance. Yeah. Very, very poetic. Um, definition the fog of war. As we yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think the key thing then is if we, we think of certain genres that worked well, you know, from the very get go, it was um, RPGs. So your role playing games, because I mean, at their very heart, a lot about what role playing games are is that, they generally always have a very rich world of characters and monsters and lore to discover, which obviously lends itself to open world. Um, but then also the idea of exploration. I think your character mm -hmm. is almost in an exploration mindset. And so a, a role-playing game obviously lands in that kind of space very easily. I mean, you're talking about yeah. even the early text-based games where you know literally all you're doing is typing. Those are some of the first open world games because you could you know for all intents and purposes explore in any direction um and then as as things obviously went you know graphical and you'd be able to see things there were certain limitations but i think a lot of games got by that with kind of a procedurally generated world so you would only ever see one screen at a time but as you move to the next screen it would procedurally generate a maze or whatever 
And so yeah. the world was, for all intents and purposes, unlimited, but it wasn't um, free exploration in the sense of like you're exploring a continent and, you know, if you go left and you go right and you go left it's it's going and you come back to that area again it's going to be the same you know those procedurally generated worlds you know once you come back it generates again so it's it's more like you're in a a mouse in an endless kind of maze than you are exploring a real world and i think that's yeah. that's a key limitation that that was there graphically until kind of more recently with games like you know the first kind of ones i remember your far cry series your assassins creeds um, the Witcher all kind of opened up this idea of like there is a continent of space and they would sell it. They'd often go like there is 10 kilometers squared space for you to explore. Um, and then yeah. everyone would try and up the ante GTA every year, bigger map, bigger world. Yeah, it's part. I mean, it became part of the marketing. Would, yeah. would it be fair to say that uh, like a defining factor for open world games, you know, compared to a linear game, for instance, is that open worlds... I find don't have a level system. Don't have it's a level system? The, yeah, it's just the map. You, you don't go from like level one to level two to level three, oh, like yeah. how we used to play games yeah. where, yeah. yeah, that segmentation of, oh, you know, I just need to finish like this level and then I'll, you know. But, but then with that level system that kind of creates the the feeling of progression in um, in a linear game, for instance, you'll have character progression or like the level of your particular character, you know, or... Well, it may not be a, a level system in that in that sense, skill system, whatever. I mean, those are all aside. In terms of like the genre itself, yeah. there must be some type of progression for your character from the beginning of the experience till the end. Where you, where you end up at the end, you're like usually a lot more jacked, different. Mm. You know, you've collected. You, you know, you you're wearing the stars and stripes of your you know escapades throughout yeah. this open world journey. You know, you're now a, a, a bearded <laughs> Viking king. Yeah. Desperado. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, I think the level distinction is key. I, I think it's fairly um, fair to say that like open world games don't have a level progression. They'll have it in the sense that a lot of them have mini gating by going certain areas are more difficult. And so your character needs to have progressed to a certain level to be able to go to those areas. So that's that's fair, but it's not like, Mario level 1.1 level 1.2 you know like there's not um this uh, linear ramping up of of difficulty like you would have uh you know in a in a kind of um platformer or those sort of games um the the one thing as well is i think one needs to define the difference between an open world game and a sandbox game because okay. i think they're similar in exploration and you know that your player can do what you want but i think sandbox games is or sandbox games are perhaps a little bit more um you're just given tools to play with as opposed to you are a character in a world in general i mean you take some of your sandbox games like a a lot of these creator games like uh, dreams or minecraft you know it's essentially the world is yours to create as you wish I mean, you happen to have a playable avatar in a game like Minecraft, but essentially you can do whatever you want as opposed to in an open world game where you are this defined character that, you know, maybe you've loosely defined because you get to choose character traits or whatever, but you are there exploring the world that's been created for you, not the other way around. But in a, in a sandbox, your sort of avatar still kind of accumulates value over time. Like mm. if I've got a world that I created in Minecraft three months 
later I have like way more diamonds in my stash than I did when I started, you know, way more structures, way more, I've, you know, affected my will on this world to the best of my ability for like a prolonged period of time. Yeah. No, hundred percent. Okay. So I want to jump into then perhaps some of the limitations of a true open world experience. Cause I think, you know, in the past open world kind of games were just, um, you know, like it's just a big stage. The stage is big or it's one stage. And that was kind of like, it's open world. But um, some of the things that certainly limited that kind of enjoyment of an open world were poor NPCs. So having <laughs> yeah. really poor other characters in the world. So um, it, it just felt like, heck, I might as well be playing Mario against a bunch of Goombas because like there was the amount of effort that was put into those characters and, you know, the AI and all that, they might as well just been like mushrooms crawling around on two feet. You, you needed mm-hmm. to have rich non-player characters to be able to create this world. Cause otherwise, you know, it doesn't feel lived in, as you mentioned, being one of the key factors, you know, you compare that to like a, uh, dark souls or a witcher where the characters have like their own backstories and you feel like they've mm. almost been written like a soap opera where everyone's got their backstories and their, you know, alignment on the, you know, chaos, good, evil, neutral sort of matrix, yeah. you know, they've, and how they tie into different characters. And that's became super important to, you know, this feeling of a lived in world. Yeah. And I think, you know, another thing that I started noticing with open worlds now, I mean, if you think about, okay, so let's say the motivation for like the vast majority of um, developers to really start putting their weight behind open world development around like, you know, I tentatively put down here like 2014, but you said it's probably happening earlier around like 2010, 2011. And granted like 2011, 12, we'd probably be getting like trailers for games that were in de- like open world games that were in development that we only yeah. see in 2014 to like 2016. So a lot of these were in development and I think a lot of it had to do with the, you know, uh, value for money versus playtime, where, yeah. uh, where a linear game might offer like an eight to 10 hour experience, but then an offering coming from another developer that says open world, you know, a hundred plus, you know, um, like hours of play, you're like, I'll buy that one. I'm going to get yeah. a lot more bang for my buck, basically, if we're working it down to rands per like playtime, which generally I think is like a poor rule of thumb to use when valuing okay. your like time spent in a video game. Yeah. For various reasons that we'll probably get into a bit later, but like that's something I just wanted to kind of, uh, kind of like make a stamp on that I think this push towards like more open world games that and they started to come thick and fast, yeah. you know, between like 20 the years of like 2014, 2016, and still up till today, um, kind of had to do with this perception of creating more value for yeah. like the player, more value for the time, more value for their money. Even when a lot of the most recent open worlds that we've been getting, um, and I, th- I think the worst offenders would have to be Ubisoft, were like rehashed worlds. Mm. You know, like we uh, what same was it, assets, uh, yeah. Uh, the like Far Cry does this every year. They'll you know Far Cry Five, then Far Cry New Dawn, same map. They'll yeah. just put a different paintbrush over it. Yeah. Same with like Far Cry Four and um, Primal. Primal. I still think Primal 100%. was like quite different, like compared to, but it's the same map, right? So it's yeah. 
and those are assets that they've created. You know, like an, another um, classic example of that is maybe Assassin's Creed um, Odyssey versus um, Origins, where yeah. a lot of the same assets they'll just like times ten time, <laughs> like you know, bigger world, more ships, more buildings that look the same. You know, and I find myself just like kind of running through a lot of that open world and having it just blur past me because every location looks about the same as the last one yeah. compared to, you know, a slightly smaller world where more care was taken to the different corners of it. Yeah. I think another key thing was, you know, you talk about the sudden obsession with open worlds. It feels like it was around about the early 2000s or maybe the, the mid noughties as they call them, like 2005 to 2010, around about then. It's like, it felt like, the games that were winning the awards and that were, you know, like killing it at the box office or the you know, game sales, or whatever, were open world games. And so it felt like other developers were going, that's why they're successful. You know, it's not the story. It's not the graphics. It's not the world they've created. It's the fact that they are open world. So how do we make our Tetris game open world? How do we make our, you know, every single thing became open world? And, and we discussed before certain genres it fit, but others it really didn't. And so it became this idea of going, it's almost like, um, you know, when you see certain brands, all of a sudden, like, everything's got added vitamin C, new improved recipe with guarana and ginseng and a whole bunch of other buzzwords, and the gaming buzzword just became open world. Like, yeah. he's like, hey, I've developed a, a puzzle fighting game. Oh, that's interesting. Is it open world? Uh, no. Uh, it can be. Okay, cool. Here's a bag of money. Make that open world. And Hey, guys. I know a puzzle fighter game. We've just got to make it open world somehow because otherwise they won't give us money. So that kind of started, I know I'm being ridiculous, but it starts feeling like it was one of those to get noticed, you had to just shout about open worldness. And like you said, you had to shout about size of the map or hours of gameplay. And I remember anecdotally an example of uh, 2008, guys were debating about the game of the year contenders and people were putting down God of, year, God of War which won the title at the end of the year, and I believe deservedly so, because Red Dead Redemption, like they said, was four times that gameplay hours. You know, God of War is yeah. only 25 hours to complete. But, you know, um, Red Dead Redemption, you haven't even scratched the surface. You've barely even gotten off your horse in the first 24 hours. And you're going... No, because you're still because <laughs> you're still busy putting like an oil treatment on like your horse saddle that's going to take you 25 minutes. 100%. Then you put that on. Then you got to go like you know change your spurs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then you got to yeah, go like just... you know chew on a reed and like skip rocks on the fucking. <laughs> yeah. And and like I I love Red Dead Redemption Two as an example, particularly in this discussion, just as an offender for the best and worst qualities of open world games in that. Okay this world was so vibrant and so real and so alive. All the NPCs had so much uh, personality. Yeah. Uh, there were very few like dialogue pieces that were repeated. You know, you walk into a space and every character feels, feels so alive, mm. but then you're spending a lot of your time like on horseback, just kind of mindlessly traversing, you know, this terrain from, from, you know, one side of the prairie to the other, Yeah. you know, only for your horse to get like a blister or something. And then you got to spend the next 15 minutes, like pulling the thorns out of, you know what I mean? Like there's this, they, they, they kind of like leaned really heavily onto the realism element, yeah. which to be fair, like gives the game a lot of its like uh, praise and charm and is probably 
a good reason for like why it was a game of the year contender. Mm. But at the same time, I found like, <laughs> I found that I didn't have the patience for it. And I don't know if yeah. that's just because I've been trained to be an impatient like gamer yeah. where here came a, a, along comes a game that tells me to like, you know, take a back seat, relax, look at the flowers, yeah. take a sniff, take a gander, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. And, and it was just like a, an unsettling experience. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And to be fair, those that played through 80 plus hours said it was their best game ever. And cool, fair enough. You bought into it. Maybe part of it was the fact that you paid money for it. And so you had to get your value for money. And so, you know, uh, buyer's remorse be damned. I'm going to love this game. Every damn, you know, polished saddle or, you know, dandelion picked um, part of it. But um, I think part of it, you know, you mentioned was like the riding around and all that is it feels like games at a certain point went, we're just going to take the menu system and make it open world. And yes, it's more realistic, but it's just padding. I mean, if you th I, the, the first game that kind of struck me for that was like Need for Speed. I can't remember which one exactly, but you went from the super like fun part of like going to the garage, souping up your ride, winning races to like buy new stuff and then going to the next race and it would start and the best songs would be blaring and you just go race to race to race and it was amazing. But then all of a sudden they made it so no, it's open world. So you have to drive around finding the races and at certain times of the day and oh, you just missed this one. And so I've got to drive halfway around town to get to this. And it's just like, no, you know, I don't, I don't want to do that. You've just taken what is a quite simple menu system and turned it into like me having to drive around to each mission. And so in a lot yeah. of ways, what you're talking about Red Dead is similar. Um, which is why as soon as you unlock fast travel, you do. So like you've got all this realism, but then people just fast travel everywhere anyway. So um, it reminds me of a key thing with gaming where you go realism versus enjoyment is a massive battle. You take VR, yeah. for example. There are a lot of games where you go, wow, the VR experience is just so more, much more realistic and it's incredible and all that. But sometimes it's not as convenient to like, instead of, you know, waving around like an idiot and doing this massive gesture, I can press X, you know, to do the same thing. And it's yeah. just like, that's exactly that. Sometimes I would just rather use a controller than have to flail around like an idiot. I'd put on all this gear and worry about <laughs> tripping and smashing my TV. I'd just give me a controller. Yeah. Um, and so, especially games that allowed you to do both, like um, Resident Evil, what is it, 7, where you had yeah. VR and normal on the same game, the VR experience is clunky. It's yes, it's realistic and and it's great for uh, horror games because it's super immersive. But you know, being able to, for example, you know, just aim with the controller as opposed to like moving your hands around is is a key thing. Yeah, um, and I think it's it's a good place to like drop RDR two in a game just for <laughs> yeah, it's realism. Well, you know, like if if we had like a a realistic real life open world game. We're like the open world is basically <laughs> like life, right? Mm, Wake yeah. up in the morning. What do you do? Go take a waz. You know, <laughs> maybe brush your teeth. Jump in the shower. Better put in a cup of co pot of coffee. Don't let it boil over. You yeah. know, like all those little things. You know, when you do it for the first few times, it's magical. Uh, when you're doing it for like, you know, a hundred plus times over. Like I remember, like in the first, you know, couple hours of of RDR two. You'd set up your camp and work up in the morning. I'm like, you know, fuck it. This beard's getting a bit uh, unwieldy. Let me do a bit of a trim there. 
uh, oh, these horses look hungry. Why don't I do a couple of chores around the campsite? So I'm fucking, you know, pulling this hay bale from this side of the camp to the other. I'm, you know, like uh, cleaning these spurs and yeah. taking this water, feeding the pigs. And, and I'm like, this is cool. And I never did it again. You know, those, those things were still there in the game. And I appreciated the game for putting them there. And the fact that, like, if you did them, some NPC would come up to you and be like, yeah, thanks for, you know, watering the, um, watering the horses this morning. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. like, what a ledge. I'll be like, <laughs> you're all right, girl. <laughs> Get on with my life. Yeah. No, 100%. So it's, it's one of those things, like, you play a game because you want it to be fun, you know? And I don't know, if I had to spend the exact amount of time as, you know, you know if it was a shower scene and i need to take 15 yeah. minutes to shower i don't want to do that with my two hours of gameplay is to spend 15 minutes showering just because it's quote-unquote realistic so i think Although that jumps there, <laughs> yeah there yeah. was there was something to be said about like taking a shower as norman reedus in like death stranding yeah, i don't know it always felt game, satisfying because I, I got because i got a grenade every time i did it <laughs> it's like the game rewarded me every time i took a dump like cool <laughs> i'm gonna throw this at a fucking ghost soon <laughs> Um, and that, that kind of brings me to one of the other problems with the open world system is sometimes because the obsession was with game time and making sure that like your open world seemed full and seemed with things to do, there was just so much padding. Like it felt mm -hmm. like so much of the game became like fetch quests and collecting coins or hidden XYZ that had nothing to do or gave you no benefit. You didn't fetch the coins because for every 10 you unlocked, you got a new skill point. You just collected them because they were there to be collected. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. sometimes you got incentives like, um, you know, unlocked new abilities or, uh, you know, they were keys to unlock a certain part of the, the stage that you couldn't access. Otherwise, that's, you know, all right. You know, it's a little bit lazy, I suppose, in terms of a way of doing it. But, you know, it's better than sometimes you just like you collect these just for the sake of collecting them so you can get the platinum trophy. Because unfortunately, the, the completionist in me, once I do the, the math, I'm going, okay, cool, I collect these, maybe like one every 10 minutes, there are 100 of them. Yeah, no, thank you. Like, I'm not going to, because you get to that yeah. point of the game where you finish the game in entirety, you're on that like 98% completion rate, so you go get a YouTube tutorial and you literally go one by one collecting these damn things. First of all, working out which ones you have and which you don't, and then just like, Fast travel to this point. Look at where the video is on the map. Okay, cool. It's yeah. Spend ten minutes finding it. Next, next, next. Literally, just literally me trying to get like the collect all Gwent cards um, achievement in uh, Witcher Three, which after three hundred hours I still have not been able to do. <laughs> and yeah. I've played pretty much every single NPC that I can, like in Gwent in that game. Still haven't gotten that. Uh, that trophy still don't have my fucking platinum. So, <laughs> and I don't think I have like the hears to like try that ever again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it certainly, it takes the fun out of the game. I think that's the key. We, yeah. That seems to be a trend a little bit is like all this stuff is just taking the fun out of the game. Uh, another thing we brought up quite often with open world games, and I know we, it feels we are really like sticking it to open world games, like some sort of defenseless, mm -hmm sort of like punching bag, but we will we'll obviously defend open world games when they do a good job. But it's the idea that when your game is narrative driven, so you've got the storyline, it's really hard to push the 
player into a sense of urgency in an open world, or at least it hasn't been done successfully yet. Um, for example, some catastrophic thing is happening in the next hour, or you can go find flowers because if you collect a hundred of them, you get a shiny hat. And you're just like, if the player wants to collect that, that's the rules of open world, it seems, is let the player do what they want. And so it's hard to sometimes push them towards the agenda of the main you know, narrative. Yeah. Particularly and I don't when... think it's that hard. Like it just hasn't been done. You can, you can make someone escape from the open worldness to go, you've got an hour to complete this or you have two hours to complete it. It's not like this thing that you have to, um, you, know, you know, stick them to the open world of being able to do yeah. whatever they want all the time. No, I, I feel that way when, you're, let's say you're playing, you know, open world game, you're getting towards the end of the story and it's like the last mission. It's like the world is about to be destroyed by whoever's grand fucking plan. Yeah. And it'll tell, the game will tell you, like, point of no return. Like, um, save or make sure you finished up all your side quests and shit before you, like, do this mission because it's the last mission. Yeah. And so then it's like, okay, the world can wait <laughs> while I go collect all these feathers. <laughs> BRB, motherfucker. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, what the, the bad news is going to sit there waiting, going, you know how long it took me to hatch this plan? And now you, like, oh, fine, get your yeah, feathers. I've been sitting on my monologue for weeks. <laughs> 100%. Um, yeah, so I think the other thing, and I feel like we're getting towards the end of the bad stuff, we'll jump into the good stuff now, now is um, that with a linear game, you can A, create cinematic moments where you are making sure the players, you know, sees the camera angle you need them to see, they're looking at the thing you need to look at, they can have those big aha like moments more so than you can do in open world. But also the player is generally at the right stage in terms of his skill acquisition for what you have next. And I think platformers are the key in this space. You've taught the person to jump. You've taught them to double jump. You've taught them to double jump and duck to get through X. We've taught them the moves they need and now the test. And then they pass mm. the test. So now you teach them a new skill and you pass the test. That is harder in open world games because either you have to constrict where the person can go at certain times or you have to actually create these artificial gates, which create, you know, obviously it hurts the open world theme. Mm. Or you've got to put certain skills behind like progressions that they can't get to. And I know how, how sometimes open world games do this is like certain skills you can unlock whenever you want, but other skills are unlocked by completing something. So like yeah. you don't get this weapon until you've killed the guy who owns the weapon. And that weapon gives you a skill that then allows you to traverse an area that you couldn't get to before. Yes, you know, it's yes. a grappling hook, whatever. And that's how they do it. But sometimes that gating is really artificial. And I think a major culprit for me here was Far Cry uh, New Dawn, where uh -huh. what they did was they made it open world. You can explore wherever you want, but the heroes and uh, the enemies in that had tiers. So like a tier one, tier two, tier three. And until you had done what you need to do to upgrade to the next tier, so that was you had a base of X amount of people, you had so much skill in this thing and that thing. So kind of artificial ranking, you then could rank your entire character up to the next tier. And what mm. that meant was until that point, if you attacked a base that was a tier above yours, I'm talking like you could use a sniper rifle, tier one sniper rifle and shoot a guy in the head and he was covered by nothing but a balaclava would do like 1% damage. And that was their way yeah. of like gatekeeping going, you can't go here yet. We're going to make it too difficult for you to do anything. And then I'm going, well, then it's not open world anymore. You've gone 
what's open world is everything that's tier one. Once you're tier two, yeah. now you can do everything that's one and two, but you won't do one because you're overpowered. It's, so basically, yeah, it's just content tier two. locked behind basically doors with the tier number on the exactly. on the, on the front. Is, and that was one of the reasons bad. that I that I you know I was interested in um, in New Dawn, but I kind of sidestepped that one for various reasons. And I mean, just by virtue of the fact that this game kind of was one of the big offenders of a lot of um, these sort of cardinal open world sins that we're kind of like listing off here. Yeah. Um, and Ubisoft in particular are, are, are guilty of being a company that likes to litter their maps with question marks. Yeah. You know, the question mark slash exclamation mark on a map, it only like, it tells the player that something is here. You don't That's know what it is. Yeah. Yeah, you but we're recommending there. you go there 100%. Yeah, and that's all the information. And they feel like just that, just the thought of something being there is enough to, for me to use my time to move from this place where I'm busy to go to that place to see what the fuck it is. And a lot of the times it weren't like, I feel like there was an incongruency with like the match in terms of it just not being as exciting. It's like... I, I ran across this huge desert, you know, I had to sit and watch loading screens while I, while I, uh, you know, fast traveled from X to Y and I, I got like a spear that's worse than my spear. You know? <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Cause you, you don't know what the reward's going to be. You just been you know navigating what the gonna be. Yeah, into this and I direction. Think this, so I don't know if you've checked out like the Noclip documentary from um, CD Projekt, kind of like talking about the development of The Witcher 3. Um, if anyone's interested in, I guess, this general topic discussion, talking open world games and that game in particular, definitely go check it out. What I find very interesting about that is that they go into a lot of detail about kind of how they con constructed quests, but also how they like funneled a player into a certain... Um, direction, whereas they'd run scenarios and be like, you know, so many times out of 10, the player would choose this path, so many times they'll choose that path. Yeah. And in a way that you need to kind of qualify these scenarios where if the player goes and does this before he does that, how will it affect the outcome of the quest? Yeah. You know, sometimes you get to this building before you're supposed to be there, before the NPC tells you you must go there to fetch, you know, the, the golden... Yeah. jar or spear <laughs> and you've got the spear already and yeah. and the npc you know in that scenario it might switch over and be like oh cool i see you've already got it and then but it's a fine balance right yeah whereas um i'd say lesser open world games might it, it might just you know lead to a string of bugs that that break the experience and, yeah or, oh, or i'm not supposed to be here yet or, yeah. i don't know if i'm supposed to, and a lot of i found that happened to me a lot with Dragon Age Inquisition, which kind of like threw me into this open world, laid a whole bunch of um, like me, uh, nonsense menus on top of it, gave me a whole bunch of quest markers and location markers and told me to go wild. And I did quite a few things in like an incorrect sequence that I only figured out in the like last few hours of the game. Yeah. And by that stage, it's like too late, right? I'm never going to fucking go back and do this again. No. Jesus. Like no ways. And I'm like, I wasted a good chunk of time, you know, going the roundabout way because the game didn't actually feel that it was its responsibility to funnel me through a particular, like, experience. Not saying hand-holding, 
but there are elements at play in these open worlds behind the scenes just by the way of uh, the developers, you know, stacking these mechanics in order to get that overall outcome or make that experience itself smooth. Yeah, I, I think uh, we need to now start looking at when do open world games like work? Because I mean, <laughs> let's be honest, they we're talking about some bad examples or where things have like they've gone too far because of you know, let's be honest, there have been so many games that the standard has risen to a point where, mm -hmm. like, the unforgivable, you know, has become exactly that. It's going, that's not good enough. I, I've seen it done better, and therefore I'm not going to accept padding or this kind of, yeah. like, weak storytelling, whatever. Like this for, meaningless for me, busy work or, like, checklist. Yeah. So, so for me, some of the key factors for open-world games that work is one, like, my number one would be Vibrant World. The mm. world must feel like it exists despite you. Um, I think, uh, what do they say? One of the reasons that the, like key open worlds games, the ones that do, are so, so successful, is when your character doesn't feel like the center of the universe, if yeah. you know what I mean. Like, it's it's like different you walked if in we, on some shit. Yeah. Like, Y'all oh, been busy it, here. It, it should feel like... I mean, it's different if your character has notoriety, so you walk into a certain area and they go, oh, it's him sort of thing. But it's a case of going, if you decided to go, your character, oh, I'm feeling a little bit under the weather. I'm just going to sleep it off today. The world's not going to go going like Truman Show style. Uh, oh, is there no episode today? It's like it's still, they're still <laughs> doing their thing. They are still yeah. like living their life, doing whatever. And that is more immersive than a Truman yeah. uh, you know, Truman Show style thing where like the entire game revolves around you, the player. And those are the games, like you take GTA, for example. The world is so lived in and vibrant that, you know, especially with the latest one, when you jump between the three characters and you've got, you know, between Trevor and I can't remember the other characters' names, but like the fact that while the one is tearing and doing a rampage and doing whatever, you're pretty sure the other two are like living their life and doing their thing, which is yeah. why the story works so well because you jump between the three of them, you know, kind of at will. Sometimes the quests bring you together. Sometimes they're alone but you always feel like you know what's going on between the three of them because they're living their life. And that's probably why GTA role-playing is one of the most popular things on Twitch for the longest yeah. time. Like it's one of those like mm. perennials where you can go onto a Twitch stream and find someone playing GTA role-playing where they literally have just created a character, they're in GTA Online, and today they are a drug dealer or they're a card jacker or they are trying to, you know, create some sort of pyramid scheme investing in property. Like there's so many yeah. different <laughs> things you can do and they just create these personalities because the world is so vibrant that you can do yeah. that. So that for me is a, a definite key to open worlds that do well. So I, like I'm hundred percent with you on that. Um, like a world that feels alive, a world that feels lived in a world that, you know, I want to explore just out of curiosity to see how alive it really is. Like when you start to push the boundaries of the open world and interact with the NPCs and see how much detail, you know, and, and efforts and polish like went into their responses because the devs anticipated that I might try to interact with them in this specific yeah. way and then gave them something to do. So it's, you know, it, it's really kind of uh, self-aware development in that way. Yeah. And then I think um, another like really important point for me is a meaningful sense of progression where okay. 
I'm not, it's not just meaningless busy work. There is an end goal. I will get some value out of it, you know, whether that is progressing the story, making my character stronger, which will allow me to then, you know, get to the next thing and to the next, to the next thing, you know, I've got to get this thing to get that thing so I can yeah. get stronger, so I can defeat this thing and, you know, turn in that, uh, that prize or trophy for, you know, uh, uh, some clout. So really yeah. that meaningful sense of progression, whether it's an item system, leveling system, um, like that for me is the big draw card that, that really pulls me through. If it's, you know, um, things that are build defining, you know, working yeah. out different builds, a skill tree, like that, that pulls me in as well. Like a lot of uh, effort put into that side of things as well as a vibrant open world. Yeah. And I think another, just to like tag onto that is that, great side quests. So side quests that are meaningful, that add to the story. I think obviously Witcher, we always bring up as, you know, you're doing these little side quests and next thing you know, you spent an extra half hour on one random side quest. It's not a fetch thing. It's like a, it's almost its own little um, mini kind of part of the story. Like it would be in a world where like you're this mercenary for hire and yes, you've got your main story, you know, stopping the wild hunt and, you know, finding Siri and all that. But then, you know, some random person asks you to help with, you know, you know, their, their wife's run away or whatever. Next thing, it's you're on this werewolf hunt because someone's been captured or turned into a werewolf. And it's, it's so rich and part of the story. And then when you later yeah. find out that, like, the fact that you've made that decision impacted you later because there's another clan that, whatever, hunts werewolves and now you've like, interfered with their work. And so now you're stepping yeah. on their territory. Those sort of things are great. Where the side quest almost, you feel like the way they've written gone you know, if the person interacts with this and then the decisions they make, these are the people that are realistically going to go yay or neutral or be negative towards your character. Um, another one. That's what happens me, when you have like a quest development team that like works in the same building yeah, yeah, <laughs> and can like talk to each other instead yeah. of like, you know, one that's, you know, in uh, Europe, another one in, yeah. in, in Asia and they outsource uh, to like, like a sweatshop. Of yeah, like, and, hey, and, we need, and we need to provide feel... an extra 30, con 30 hours of content inside quest. Go. Yeah. Like, and, and things feel disconnected. So definitely on on the same boat as that, you know, side quests that feel as though they're a part of the world that that uh, the developers want you to interact with. Yeah. Uh, I mean, another classic I always remember is Skyrim, where, you know, you had a random bar and some guy challenged you to a drinking contest. And so you're drinking with them and then win or lose, it doesn't matter, you pass out. And the next thing you wake up and like you check your inventory, you've got nothing, like all your stuff's gone. You open up the map and you are miles, like miles <laughs> away from anything you've explored. Like you're just in this like, you know, it shows the little camp, the name of you in, but like it's just darkness. The fog of war is not explored in any way. It's almost like the quest will automatically put you, you know, 200 miles away from anywhere close to where you are. But it's the thing of like, you clearly went on a bender woke up in this monastery with like no stuff because it's all been taken or lost or you sold it or pawned it or whatever. And you're naked like on the other side of the map. And for me, this then kicks off, hey, we want you to explore a different area of the map. This is how we can do it in a fun way that like, you know, mm. just kind of like, you know, makes that open world kind of feeling. And, and sorry, the last one is not to say random little like um, jumping through hoops things can't fit. And the one is like Batman's The, the Riddler Quests. Because mm -hmm. the Riddler as a personality type is completely like ridiculous. We'll make these stupid traps and puzzles that have no point except to prove, you know, to give multiple chances for Batman to like be, you know, proven inferior to the Riddler's intellect. And so the fact that you've got like 
you know, you're, you're running around doing stuff and you suddenly see a little green, you know, question mark, you'll go do it because it can be random and just like a, a little trinket kind of puzzle, but it feels part of like the Riddler's personality is to just yeah. like litter the place with all these, you know, the fact that in the latest game, those Riddler trophies then unlock Riddler races. And I'm kind of going, hmm, this is, I don't know that the Riddler would do that. Like they'd have these puzzles that then unlock new races that now you can, because we've just added the Batmobile to the game, you know, great timing, you know, for the first time the Riddler puzzles open Riddler races is the first time the Batmobile's playable. You know, what are the chances? Mm. The Riddler so, yeah, secretly that, into the Tour de France. 100%. <laughs> so yeah, those, those are kind of for me the three, oh, sorry, one last thing, that travel must be fun. Because um, yeah. if I think of games where the open world is great or, or is better, is when just traveling the world is fun. So Spider-Man, Batman, GTA, like speeding around like on a motorcycle or like the fastest car you could find or a tank in GTA, spinning webs as Spidey or, you know, as Batman, you've got your grapples and your, your grappling hooks and your, you know, gliding and all that sort of stuff. It's awesome just to do that stuff. And so jumping yeah. from menu to menu, you know, well, not the menu, the, the new menu, which is flying around from mission to mission, is is enjoyable. It's not even less tedious. It's actually enjoyable. Whereas, you know, yeah. take Red Dead Redemption. How many times I've been driving my damn horse and actually looking at my phone and I need to get closed line by a tree or to go over a cliff yeah. and die. And you're just like, oh, that's 20 minutes of progression I've lost because I was bored. And then you feel we'll even less say, engaged because like, yeah. We'll say that uh, like parkour in uh, Assassin's Creed kind of missioning over the rooftops just always feels dope. Yeah. It was it was always cool. It will always feel cool. Can't speak for Odyssey, but even back from the days of like Assassin's Creed 1, 2, 3, fucking Ezio Aldatore, my boy, always <laughs> felt good. Yeah, 100%. So yeah, I, I think if you made a checklist for your next open world game, does it fit the genre? Because certain open world things are not going to fit. And I go... Open world puzzle game. Uh, I know they did it with The Witness. It's not really open world. It's just that you can, you know, potentially choose which ones you want. Open world horror game probably won't fit because the idea of like openness and exploration doesn't fit with like the fear and claustrophobia that a horror game needs to induce. Mm. Um, open world real time strategy war game probably also wouldn't work. So does it fit your genre? Have you created a vibrant world that feels like it exists despite the player? Is travel fun? Are your side quests integrated and add value as opposed to just feeling like fetch quests? And if you have all that, oh, and meaningful progression, that your character actually is picking up stuff that are going, that's going to aid him in his main quest, then I think you've got the right formula for an open world. But um, as always, love to hear your thoughts. I know open world games generally are seen as you know, better. You know, If you ask the game on the street, do you want a linear game, an open world game? I don't know, maybe linear has bad connotations as being boring or on rails. And so, you know, the natural answer is to go open world. But then sometimes I feel like that that question is loaded. It's like, Tim, would you rather be mm -hmm. shot in the face or in the foot? You're going to go, well, is those my options? I'm like, I guess I'll take it in the foot. But, you know, can I not have like another option? <laughs> like a, a linear game that is cinematic and, you know, narratively driven rather than just like, yeah. no, it's linear. That's it. Your choice is linear or open world. Like, And I guess I throw it out to the listeners um, who might be interacting with us on Twitter, you know, when this pod goes out. 
Um, I'd say, how many of these boxes does uh, like Ghost of Tsushima tick for you, for instance? Mm. And how many uh, boxes do you feel will need to be ticked uh, for for you to enjoy uh, Cyberpunk 2077, which for me is like the next sort of big open world to kind of uh, get lost in. They're, they're, yeah. CD Projekt can shoot me in the foot and in the face as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> there you go. Um, as Tim mentioned, if you want to interact with us, please just drop us a message or a comment on Twitter at guru underscore podcast. We really do appreciate all the comments and questions we get and interact with every single one. Uh, otherwise, you can hold a Tim at Tim and a fish. I'm at the Gareth Woods. As always, it's been great talking gaming with you, and we will be back next week with another exciting topic. Until then, go out there and have some fun. Ciao. Ooh, baby.